So hello, everybody, and welcome to another crowdsourcing sustainability webinar. I am your host, Ryan Hagen. I just want to thank you for being here today. Uh, I appreciate all of you. Today, we are lucky enough to be with Luis Aguirre Torres and Rebecca Evans. To start us off, I'm just going to share the quick version of their bios, because listing all of their accomplishments would take way too long. Uh, Luis is the Director of Sustainability for the City of Ithaca in New York. Before this, he spent 12 years providing technical assistance to Latin American governments to develop climate policy and financial mechanisms for renewable energy projects, as well as leading large-scale climate justice initiatives. His work was sponsored by USAID and the US State Department. In 2012 and 2016, he was recognized by the Obama White House as a champion of change and leader in sustainable innovation. He's also the founder of Green Momentum, Clean Tech Challenge, and Clean Tech Labs. Rebecca is currently the sustainability planner for the city of Ithaca. She previously worked on sustainability for the city of Richmond, Virginia, was the campus sustainability coordinator for Ithaca College, and was instrumental in actually getting Ithaca's Green New Deal passed in 2019 as a part of the Sunrise Movement. Louise and Rebecca are in charge of designing and implementing the Ithaca Green New Deal, which focuses on two main areas, citywide decarbonization by 2030 and climate justice. So Louise and Rebecca, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having us. Uh, it is really a pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you very much. It is a pleasure to have you. All right, so I would like to start with your climate stories. Uh, you know, just a couple minutes each, if possible. But I'd love to know. Maybe we start with you, Louise. When did you start caring about climate? Why? And then, how did you get from that point to where you are today? Yeah. Well, you know, I started caring about climate a long time ago. You know, to be honest, I I've, I always had that in my mind. Uh, I grew up thinking that, you know, things were getting just worse and worse. We didn't call it, you know, what we call it today. But, you know, when I was growing up, things were, you know, you could recognize that things could be done differently. But then, you know, it all got lost. You know, you grow up, you need to find a job, you need to pay the rent, you need to pay the mortgage, and eventually you get distracted. So I was very much involved in, in you know, other things. And I was working in telecommunications. And, and it's one of those things that one day you wake up and you realize that, God, I mean, things are bad. And... And at that point, I felt that I had accumulated enough knowledge and understanding of what it was to work with government and, uh, and what it was to develop policy, what it was to develop technology, what it was to raise capital. So I figured, you know, like the, the set of skills that I have may be useful for these. So then, you know, I always say that I, that's why I moved to the green side of the forest and, you know, started working on this. And uh, so it's been, you know, almost 20 years, uh, 20 years since I started working on, on climate but probably slightly less, like 18 years since I, since I started doing it full-time. Awesome. And how about you, Rebecca? Um, my story is a lot less exciting, um, but probably will give you a good laugh. So I, I grew up in Virginia and, you know, was exposed to what most people would call a sustainable lifestyle from, a, from an early age, but I never really thought that that was something that you could like make out of a job. Um, so when I was a sophomore in college, this is such an embarrassing story. Um, there was an eco house for environmental science majors and my best friend lived in it. And she approached me and was like, you should come live with us. It would be so much fun. I was an English and graphic design major at the time. And 
Um, she said, but you have to be an environmental science major to, to move into the house. I was like, okay, well, I'll just switch. It's fine. I mean, it'd be really fun to, to, to live together. Um, so I did, and it turned out that I really, really loved it and realized that I could make a job out of it. But um, I think what, what draws me to sustainability in general is it is a really complex problem that requires really complex solutions. And um, I really like to tie my brain into knots in that way. And this was... Um, a way to do that that was fun and that actually had a visible impact. Um, so it's kind of uh, it's kind of luck that I ended up here, um, but enjoying it nonetheless. That's awesome. We will we'll take all the luck we can get. I think. <laughs> all right. From here, I'd love to start just by hearing how Ithaca actually passed its Green New Deal in the first place. And then we'll, we'll dive into, you know, how you're actually designing it and implementing it. Um, so Rebecca, I'd love to hear that story, at least from your perspective, like how did, did it get started? When did it get started? Who were the key people involved? And, you know, what were the most important moments, actions or, or leverage points along the way? And I know that was a big mess of a question, but you got to just take it in whatever direction you'd like to. Yeah, no, I love telling this story because it's really fun and surprising. Um, so I was working at Ithaca College in the sustainability office and had about 12 interns um, working for me. And um, like a lot of uh, Gen Z were just angry and frustrated by the climate crisis and we're not super clear on how to plug in, how they can participate. Um, and of course, being on a college campus, that rage and frustration was directed directly at, at us, <laughs> the college administration. So they're talking about, you know, what can we do? How can we apply pressure to, to make your job easier and get more funding, all sort of stuff. And so we sat down and started thinking, okay, the college has its own priorities, but what if we thought a little bit bigger than that? Um, typically, we think about town-gown relationships as um, colleges and universities pushing cities to do the right thing. And so I suggested, what if we flipped that on its head and tried to do the opposite, where the municipality is pushing the university and the colleges to do the right thing? There are two colleges in, in Ithaca. Um, so they kind of ran with that, loved it. There was a group of maybe four or five students that were really amped about it. And we started strategizing meeting at bars and thinking about like, how can we do this? Is this even possible? Do we know the right people? And the, largely the answer was no. So um, I had to draw on my, my limited expertise in, in organizing and we ended up collecting hundreds of letters um, to the mayor of Ithaca saying we want a Green New Deal. This is all around the same time that AOC and Senator Markey had introduced the federal Green New Deal and Sunrise was just really getting started nationally. So really jumped on it, ended up founding a chapter of the Sunrise Movement and using that kind of as a platform for delivering these letters. So these letters were just dumped at the mayor's office. And I actually just got um, a different perspective on how this, how this went down from one of our former colleagues that used to work with the city. And he had been pushing to be more aggressive on climate for years. And the mayor calls him into his office and he's like, what if we just adopted a Green New Deal? 
and Nick, our, our former Carly, is just like slack jaw, stunned, cannot believe that this is happening. And so they agree. And we have a couple of closed doors meetings with the mayor and end up doing a big Green New Deal town hall at the local library where it was packed to the gills, overflow room, standing room only, um, where we just had a conversation about what a federal Green New Deal means. And at the end of the meeting, after the two hour presentation, the mayor comes out um, in all his glory and announces, oh, by the way, carbon neutrality by 2030, we're going to do it. And it was amazing. Everyone is like screaming and clapping. There's crying. Um, it was very, very cool. Um, and that is the, that's the origin story of the Ithaca Green New Deal. So um, the mayor uh, proposed a resolution to council that said citywide carbon neutrality by 2030. Um, with a focus on um, remediating some inequities that have been present in the city of Ithaca, as they have been all across the country. And here we are, two years later, trying to actually do it. Wow. That is incredible. Um, it almost, how, like, what was the time span of that? Because that, you made that seem like it was almost, e like, not easy, but like, you know, you write the letters, you get some enthusiasm, and the, the mayor just was, is, was it a progressive mayor? Like, why, how did this go down? Yeah, so he is a progressive mayor, was he um, recently resigned, so former mayor, um, and also what is young. Um, so I think that that helps a lot. He can he could relate to the students or at least wanted to relate to the students. Um, but from the founding, which was probably January 2019, the resolution passed through Common Council, which is a, a lengthy process. Um, and that was in June, is that right, Luis? June 2019. The mayors or the letters were probably deli delivered in February. We had that town hall in March. So it, it moved very, very quickly. It was really only two months between the founding of the organization and getting the mayor on board to announce um, that he was proposing this resolution. Wow. And what was in these letters? Did that seem like a, a key part of this? Um, a lot of misinformation, actually. So it was a bunch of letters from college students that basically said, you know, I'm a constituent of the city. I spend my time and my money here and the climate crisis is real and I'm really scared. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, it was really kind of in a, it was a fact-based emotional story, I think. Um, and I think that's really what appeals to people. It's we, I mean, there's a ton of research that says that the science, communicating the science isn't what works. It's um, communicating personal stories that does. So I think that may have had something to do with it. Um, but the funny thing is they all claim to be constituents even though none of them actually lived in the city. They live in the town of Ithaca which is a different municipality. Um, but apparently that's not, that didn't bother the mayor <laughs> all that much. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of climate stories. Um, like he sort of prompted us with. Awesome. Yeah, I think I think stories are incredibly powerful. Um, for people who are just getting started in their town, where do you think they should focus their time and energy? Like, what's the best strategy? Or it seems like you got started with the letters themselves and just talking to people like in the bar. But like, do you have any other advice or sort of step one, step two, step three of how people could maybe think about this? I think every region and municipality is going to be different. Um, and certainly, um, you know, 
local electeds are also going to be different all across all across the world. Um, but the way that I think about it is once, and this is going to sound terrible, but once you trap them into a commitment, then they have to do it, which is kind of where we're at now in Ithaca. They've committed to 2030, and now we have to make it happen. Um, and we joke all the time, um, internally and externally, that perhaps local government didn't really know what they were getting themselves into when they signed on to the Green New Deal and didn't realize how much work and money it actually is going to require. Um, so I think that played to our advantage a little bit. Um, it's kind of a, it's a mission driven resolution that did not have a lot of teeth to it, um, much like the federal Green New Deal. I mean, it's a resolution. Um, so that was our strategy. Will that work other places? I, I really, I don't know. Um, I haven't, haven't done it from start to finish yet. Um, and I've only started it once. Um, but, you know, the next step is obviously hiring somebody with a, with a vision like Luis um, that has the experience and the vision to really make this happen. I think what the Green New Deal is now is somehow exactly what we envisioned and totally beyond what we envisioned, um, something that we could never possibly even imagine. So it's been, it's been cool to see it come to life. But yeah, I don't think that there are any... I don't think there's a clear roadmap um, for every municipality. I mean, every local government's going to be different. That's a mm -hmm. terrible answer, um, but <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> so I think we're going to have a lot of questions about this at the end, um, but okay. just in general, back to getting started, is it really just about like having conversations with people who are kind of on board or might be on board and then continuing those conversations, writing letters and kind of pushing for, like, did you guys propose, what were you proposing in the Green New Deal to the mayor? What was your like demand? Carbon neutrality by 2030. That was the okay. only demand. And then a focus on, on justice in the process. Um, and then that's basically all that was in the resolution other than some interim sort of goals, like, fleet electrification and that sort of thing. Um, but it really was very, very general and um, left a lot up to interpretation, which I think is where Louis started running with it. Um, and I, I think actually Louis has a has a good explanation for this question actually about, you know, how many people does it actually take to make change happen? Um, so I would suggest Louis that you give that little spiel. Let's hear it. Uh, how many people it takes for, for change to happen, you mean? Well, well, I mean, like, you know, the bell curve and... Yeah, explanation. no, <laughs> that explanation. That, that is a very technical explanation of what we do. But, you know, <laughs> I, I think it is, I mean, at the very core, it is, we are facing impossible odds. Right. And, and, and it's not so much that this is so difficult technically or financially. There is enough money. There is technology. There are policies. We understand what needs to happen. A lot of it is people. You know, how do you convince people to do the right thing? And, you know, I, I lost one of my best friends to this job because I, I got the job and then I suggested this is what I'm going to do. And it turns out that she was like, no, fuck it, man. I'm not going to work with you on that. You know, like I like I like my house, my car, my pickup truck, you know, and, and it is a personal thing. So we were aligned on everything except for that one thing. And by the way, sorry about, sorry. 
Uh, but uh, it, it's, uh, so then we are convinced that we don't need to bring everybody on board. We just need to bring enough people on board. So then you start thinking, how do we make this as efficient as possible? No? And, and we understand, for example, in the town of Ithaca, we understand that there is about a third of the population that voted for the apprentice and, and that are not really you know, uh, involved in climate change. So they are you know, very happy to ignore you. And you know, it would be a waste of energy and time and money trying to convince them. So then you are left with 70% of the population. And then out of that 70%, you know, there is in our city, there's about 15% who are the Tesla owners, who are the people who are already invested in their lives in, in making things different and better. So then you are left with 55%. Out of those, you know, in our case, half of them are, are really disadvantaged communities, low income people, that all they want is a better life. So, it, so that tells you, we need to fine tune this to make sure that these, this group of people actually benefit the most from what we're doing. So then it's all about, you know, if we tune this right, then they're going to come, you know, it's, it's the field of dreams, you know, we're going to put in front of them something that just means a better life. Then you are left with 30%. So that 30% becomes critical and that, you know, really inform our approach. It's highly efficient. We're targeting a group of people that are very close to the median income that know about this, but they don't have any clear incentive to act on it. And, and then you start moving one and then the next and then the next. And then at some point, you know, you, you have a critical mass. And then once you have a critical mass, then suddenly you have more than half the city. And it's just the same as, you know, the people who had a Blackberry, you know, like a couple of years ago that they were looking at you with, you know, any other smartphone and thinking, yeah, I'm behind with the times. So, you know, people will start getting on board. And, you know, our hope is that, you know, that which, you know, actually is uh, behavioral economics. No? I mean, uh, we can actually consider that that 30% of the population becomes a notch from that perspective. And that notch is the one that are gonna you know, turn everybody around. So that's our approach, that we're, that's what we're going for. So, you know, there's no number, uh, but yeah, you know, you just need to turn a few to, to get the risk. That is definitely helpful to hear. So that's sort of the strategy theory of change to get this thing snowballing, yeah? That's exactly what we're doing, yeah. Um, all right, let's take a step back. Uh, how could you, could you like kind of paint the picture of the vision of Ithaca's Green New Deal? You know, just broadly what it is, what are the main goals and, and how did you sort of pick them, I guess? <laughs> I can try. Uh, I, I need to give you some context, man. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to understand, you know, like yeah, the frustration please. and desperation and, you know, energy behind this. You know, I, I was working in, in Latin America and then COVID hit. Uh, my, my wife lives in Ithaca. She's a professor at Cornell University. And I was doing this work and I was commuting back and forth, right? But then when this happened, they closed the border with the U.S. So I was stuck on the other side in Mexico. And even though I am from Mexico, my life, my family is, is here, right? So I am finding a way of coming back to Ithaca, which is very romantic from a classic point of view. But, you know, I really am trying to make it back to Ithaca. And at some point, you know, they opened the border, uh, but you couldn't really fly into any blue state. You need to fly into a red state because they didn't have these restrictions. So I had to fly and then I had to drive and make it all the way home. And eventually I made it home. And that was enough for me to say, okay, I'm never leaving this place again, you know? So then I was happily unemployed, but happy really where I was. But I had this need to continue working and doing things. So I applied for this job that, you know, Rebecca and her friends, 
you know, uh, you know, thanks to them, the, the city was looking for somebody to, to lead the Green New Deal. And in the interview, they asked me like, okay, the, the resolution says carbon neutrality by 2030, what do you think? And my answer was, that's absolutely crazy. You know, that's completely nuts. Like anybody who tells you that that is possible is totally nuts and is just trying to get the job. You want an honest answer, that's just crazy. So what followed was you're hired. And, 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 and I was like, okay, because, you know, I added at the end, like, it's crazy, but you know, it's one of the most amazing challenges that you could face in your life. You know, if somebody tells you, you okay, you're, you may not have the money, you may not have the time, you may not have the staff, but dude, we really want you to do this. So, so just go crazy, you know, go nuts at it. So I, I did, I, I, they offered the job, I took the job, I read the resolution and I was like, oh, this is not gonna happen, man. I was really looking at it and I remember like carbon neutrality by 2030. I was like, yeah, right. Then compensating for historical inequities, like, okay, we got it. Uh, economic inequality, racial injustice. And I was like, okay, what else do you want, right? I mean, literally. Uh, but then I started looking at it and I was like, okay, this might be doable. I mean, we just need to rephrase this and we need to think about it very differently. And, and you know, I always talk about the Green New Deal as, as and, and, you know, this really informs the vision that we have, which is the Ithaca Green New Deal is a mission-oriented collaborative approach to carbon neutrality. And that is the first change, right? And mission-oriented is a callback to, to the moon landing, to the development of the vaccine, which, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, we landed on the moon, we had the vaccine, but the logistics, you know, what happened to get there, it was amazing. You know, we created new partnerships. We redefined the role of government, society, you know, how we spend money. And then for the vaccine, you know, we have the science, but how do you distribute that three times to 7 billion people in the planet, right? So it is all about, you know, having this mentality that, you know, there is a mission that we need to meet and it doesn't matter, you know, what we need to do as long as we know we have to do it and we can do it together. So there, there is that. And then the second part was, you know, it's not about carbon neutrality, it's about people. And people will enjoy the benefits of carbon neutrality, but people are connected in, in, in strange and wonderful and beautiful ways. Uh, so it is all about elevating social capital. It's all about elevating that that makes people unique and connected. And, and in doing so, you know, implicitly redefining the social contract, you are actually identifying what the role is of government, society, the relationship that they have, so then the Ithaca Green New Deal became this mission-oriented collaborative approach to carbon neutrality where at the core, we are really focusing on elevating social capital, redefining the social contract, and really driving towards a model where, where you have equity, where you have justice at the very core of a giant effort that strives to uh, achieve uh, uh, sustainable prosperity for everybody in the community. And, and then there was the recognition that this process is, is you know, it, it's a global imperative. It's not something that Ithaca is doing alone. So it's something that we're doing in collaboration with a ton of people way beyond the city, beyond the county, beyond the United States. But then there is a recognition that we have not only an opportunity, we have this obligation to make it work. Because dude, I am from Mexico and I grew up in a place where you could never do what Rebecca did here in the US. You could never do that. Actually, you know, if you do some of that, you couldn't, you could end up in jail. And, and a lot of people are worried about food. People are worried about transportation, education, a number of things. We don't have time for that. So the fact that we're here, and, and if we contextualize this globally, Itaka is in a wonderful position to take on this, but then it became an obligation. And then suddenly when this thing was in my hands, I was like, like we're gonna make it happen because if we make it happen here, it's gonna spread. It's gonna spread like fucking crazy. And then suddenly we're gonna have the state, the country, 
and maybe we'll reach to places where it really has to reach, you know. And and I, we've been talking to other people in in in, uh, in Ethiopia, in Burundi, in many other places, and and they want to do this, you know. But the conditions are so different. So the task is not just to make it happen; it's to figure out how everybody can make it happen. And dude, we are happy to be the tested. We're happy to be the ones that that tried first, because you know, if we crack this nut suddenly everybody's going to be able to, to do this. So anyway, I think that is the vision. That's what we're trying to do. And there are a ton of you know technical, financial components behind. But I think at the end of the day, what we needed to do was to give it a massive heart to this thing. And we needed to give a sense of a collective approach uh, and stakeholder governance to this project. Mm -hmm. That's super helpful. Um, I'd like to, to get into the nuts and bolts of this a little bit. Um, and maybe you can do two things at once, because I also would love to hear you dive into or just elaborate on elevating social capital and how your Green New Deal is going to do that or is already doing that. Uh, but could you could you kind of lay out the, the roadmap or blueprint that you have? Um, like, what are you doing? What have you done so far? What's going to happen in the next year? What does the next three years look like? Do you have that kind of broad strokes of the plan to share? Well, I kind of better do, man. Uh, yeah, no. Look, we, I, you know, we go back to the beginning. You know, the, the first thing that we needed to do was, you know, we need to see, you know, the size of the enemy. You know, we need to figure out, you know, like emissions. You know, that's what we're trying to do. We need to understand how the community was organized and how the community was divided. You know where we're, you know, where we were, you know, coinciding in terms of, you know, opinion and perspective and understanding and where, you know, some groups were being, you know, left behind or, or that they felt they were left behind in, in any case. So the first thing that we needed to do was to talk to people. And, you know, that's what I did. And, and it was funny because I, I, I was practically new in town because I was not living there before. So when I came, you know, one of my first calls was to some Rebecca Evans that, you know, was one of those activists that was just making trouble for everybody. And I remember, you know, I had been in town for two days and somebody, you need to talk to this woman. So I called her and we clicked immediately because we were talking about the same thing. We were swearing at the same time, you know, we were, you know, uh, it, it was it was really cool because I, I understood the energy that was behind everything. And, and what Rebecca gave me was a very good understanding of, of of the community, the people that we were doing this for. And, you know, I can tell you, I can describe it in so many ways. I can tell you that it's progressive. I can tell you that it's, you know, wealthy compared to other areas of New York. Uh, I can tell you that it's very highly educated because Cornell University and Ithaca College. But also I can tell you that, you know, it's 90% white. And, and, you know, the rest are, you know, minority groups that are completely invisible for a number of things. And, and it is amazing how somebody can be like super visible, you know, when it's, you know, about removing them from, from something, the right to something, uh, or, or invisible when it's about taking them into account when you have to make decisions. So the first thing that we did was that, you know, we identified that we have a 10% of uh, either invisible or highly visible individuals in the city of Ithaca that probably require much more, you know, than what was given to them. Then we extended that because we saw, you know, there is definitely a group that, that has had it worse than others. And that extends beyond the racial context. It goes into economic uh, inequality. It goes into people that don't have access to education, healthcare, vaccines, unemployment, a number of things. So, 
So once we identify that, we uh, we started, okay, if we are talking about elevating social capital and celebrating that, that connection and those principles and everything that makes the community unique, we need to see if everybody agrees that that exists and that that is actually as unique as we think. So we started thinking about a, a model of democratic engagement, you know, going way beyond consultation. And this model of democratic engagement needed to have a beginning and an end, right? So the first one is we need to work with people and the, the end of the game was, people need to influence and help implement policy decisions. Because, you know, we can ask them and ignore them. We can ask them and take them into account, or we can ask them and ask them to help us, you know, implement this thing. So Rebecca and I came up with like, what if we were to drive towards, you know, a model of stakeholder governance where we could have a participatory budget process at the end, you know, so we can have people telling us, you know, where it hurts. So we, we were thinking about it and like, what we need to do is to establish a conversation with the community. And then we were like, why, why a conversation? Let's have a thousand conversations with the community. So we created a program called 1000 Conversations with the Community. And I think in terms of democratic engagement, that's the flagship program that we have, because what we're trying to do is, and, and the process is, and it's really awesome, man, to be honest, because the idea is, for example, this is a conversation that you and I are having about the future, because that's what we're talking about, right? You know, like what's at stake is the future for everybody. But you know, by having this conversation, I, I can guess that, that you care about it just because you are here. So now we have something in common, but our lives are so different, right? So we need to figure out what, what, what is the difference. And is, is that difference really a bridge too far or is it something that you know, actually makes us closer than what we thought? You know, so we invite people to have conversations about what they care. And, and you know, for example, I could be talking to a 10 year old about what they care and they care about the future, but in a very different way from the way I care about the future. Uh, but here's the thing. For example, we can be talking and then I can ask somebody, you know, what, what, what do you care? What is the most important issue that you face? And they can tell me, you know, uh, unemployment. I haven't had a job for six months. And then I can talk to somebody and, and they can tell me, look, I always want to go to school, but I never had a chance. And now at this age, I cannot make it to school anymore, you know? And then I can talk to somebody and tell me I haven't been vaccinated, you know, because I just cannot meet the, the time in which vaccines are available because I'm working three shifts now. So... You can think that you know they are all independent problems, but the, the model that we're trying to implement here is trying to identify what the nexus would be in those three conversations. And if you think about the nexus, it could be you know systemic racism, for example. I mean, I'm not saying that it is or that it will be always, but it could be. So then you have an issue that nobody talks about because it's you know it's not polite to talk about right that right. But you know you can go back to them on a second you know effort and say, okay, in the last conversation you never mentioned this word, but I think this word is at the core of what's happening to you. And then they could go like, you know what? It might be true. So then, then you know, fine tunes approach. And eventually, you know, by identifying the nexus or what I call in a very nerdy way, the emerging complexity, you know, once you identify that, then you go like, dude, this is what we have to do. And then slowly but surely you come up with, with some topics that everybody cares about. And nobody has to mention it. You just need to be able to identify it. And that's what's going to drive the, the, the participatory budget process at the end. So that is what we're doing in terms of democratic engagement and really identifying those connections and those values and those principles and those inequities, you know, that, that make this community good and bad, you know, in, in every way. Then comes how, the rest. <laughs> how are you actually, uh, are you like recording these conversations? Is it just the two of you having them? Like, how are you gonna get to a thousand conversations with everything else you gotta do implementation wise? Well, that is a very good question. On Tuesdays, Rebecca is the host of uh, Power Launch Conversations uh, on a YouTube channel. 
And, you know, we invite people. Last week we had a, a, an electric chef, you know, a chef that is promoting induction cooking. And the guy knows his stuff, man. It was amazing to talk to him because he could tell us how, how our lives are going to be even better, you know. But he was able to talk about food, about cooking, about everything. So we talk about, you know, even recipes. Uh, in some cases, we talk about art and politics. Sometimes we talk about climate change as such. And sometimes we talk about things that you have no idea. For example, we had the major talking to one of the students. And the idea was for the major to come in as the major, but to leave the conversation as Savante Marik. You know, we needed a human being emerging from this conversation. And it was one of the most amazing exercises because at the end, you know, it wasn't the major and the student. It really was Savante and Courtney just having a conversation. And it, it was just fantastic. But in parallel, we're asking people to have conversations with their families, with their friends, to record them with their cell phone, you know, and send them our way. And then we started getting drawings. We started getting poems. We started getting songs. Uh, I think we have two songs already. Uh, we got one video with just music. Uh, so people started expressing themselves in, in very different ways. And that is opening the door for further conversations. So we're very hopeful that we're going to make it to a thousand conversations before the end of the summer. And if not, you know, we, we'll, we'll make it at some point. This is very cool. Um, this is very basic, but I've had multiple people ask me it, and I don't have a great answer either, other than like hiring a consultant or just finding an expert in the space. But an important step, and you already kind of mentioned it, is determining your city's greenhouse gas emissions, kind of the breakdown, various sources and sectors. How how did y'all do that? There are many ways in which you can do that. Uh, you know, there are different protocols that you can follow that have been, you know, defined by very large nonprofit organizations that, that help you do that. Uh, there is Google. Google, you know, provides a number of free tools for municipalities, particularly small municipalities. And you can do modeling. You know, you can base your assumptions on, you know, information that we have from similar uh, cities. Uh, so what we did was looking at the greenhouse gas inventory from the county, looking at the 2010 greenhouse inventory for the city. And we look at the Princeton study Net Zero America and the way they actually calculated greenhouse gases. And based on that, we put together Excel spreadsheet that basically told us we have 400,000 metric tons of CO2. Uh, we need to do a greenhouse gas inventory and Rebecca can tell you more about it, but. Uh, that is the actual, you know, activity to be very precise and to fully understand that. But the objective of the greenhouse gas inventory initially for us was one, to understand the size of this. So we have 400,000 metric tons of CO2. And for some people in the call that, you know, that means probably nothing, but imagine 100,000 cars outside your house when you go out jogging, you know, that's what's happening in Ithaca. Uh, so we're, we're trying to, you know, figure out where these emissions come from. And then, you know, we saw based on the economy that we have, that about 40% come from buildings. And inside every building is mostly from energy use. And energy use by 80% inside a building is for space heating because of the weather we have. So now we know 40% of the 400,000 metric tons come from buildings, energy use, mostly space heating, but also water heating, cooking, and clothes drying. Then 40% comes from uh, transportation. And we know that about 70% comes from uh, passenger vehicles. You know, and, and that tells us, you know, we need to make sure that people stop driving cars, at least as a single passenger. Uh, but, you know, a chunk of them come from transit. Some of it comes from uh, heavy duty vehicles like refuse trucks, and some of it comes from off-road vehicles. So now we have 40%. Uh, 
And then 15% of the emissions come from the grid. The, the electric grid in New York has a very you know, interesting configuration and composition because we have everything, you, know, you name it, we have it. Nuclear, coal, well, coal anymore, not anymore, but natural gas, dual fuel. We have a number of sources for, for electricity. But the way it is configured, you know, Ithaca is in a place where we can say that we have a very high likelihood that we have 85% carbon-free electricity, uh, you know, coming from nuclear and coming from hydro. So it really represents just 15% of the top, uh, of the emissions in the city. And then 5% comes from uh, waste, uh, mostly, uh, and from uh, land uh, use. So, you know, that's, those are the emissions, that's the composition. We don't have steel manufacturing, you know, we don't have cement manufacturing, so it's not as bad as it could be in other places. But, but that's what it is. And that was, you know, the beginning ones. Now that we had that information, now we knew what we needed to do. Thank you. Uh, this is this is for both of you, because I'm curious the before and after the Green New Deal has passed, but what types of organizations are you working with? And just kind of in general, what kind are needed for this type of transformation? You want to go with the ones that work on your side, Rebecca, and I'll complement with the other ones? I think the the short answer is we don't say no to anybody. Um, we are a staff of two, so we take all the help that we can get. Um, but you know, before the Green New Deal was actually passed, um, and today, the city of Ithaca and Tompkins County in general has a very um, robust activist community, um, particularly around around climate change. Um, so, you know, banning fracking in New York State, that is a claim to fame for a lot of Ithacans and um, folks from the surrounding region. So there was, there's existing momentum in Ithaca before the Green New Deal. We continue to partner with those organizations. Um, and a lot of them are activist organizations. So, you know, when we have something that needs widespread community support, we rely on those organizations to communicate that support either to council or to us or to bounce ideas off of, hey, we have this wild and wacky idea. Does it make any sense? Should we do it? And sometimes they say, you guys are totally crazy. No, leave it alone. Or yes, you know, 20 years ago, this happened and this is why it didn't work. So you need to try something different. Um, but yeah, we work with all sorts of organizations, immigrant rights organizations, um, you know, climate activist organizations, the colleges, um, you know, business associations. I think um, there are very few organizations that at least that I'd like to think that we're not working with. Um, and, you know, from the beginning of the Green New Deal and Sunrise, um, one of the, the partnerships that Sunrise was really proud of was that with the Gaia Cajono Nation, which is um, the indigenous peoples of Ithaca and Tompkins County. And that was a, um, a lot of time and, and effort and compassion went into building that relationship. And I think that's one of the reasons um, that the Green New Deal was successful was getting um, those relationships built and getting that perspective on the Green New Deal um, from the very beginning, trying to include voices that typically are either ignored or are intentionally not included. How about you, Luis? Yeah, I think on, on my side, uh, I mean, Rebecca and I work together. I mean, we do, you know, all of these were both involved in on, on the, you know, uh, climate justice side or on the, you know, direct, uh, you know, carbon emissions reduction uh, projects. 
we have, you know, we have a total of 12 projects in the city. And it is a team of two, but we don't work alone. We work with a very large number of people. And I mean a very large number of people. Uh, you know, I think we can count at least 50, you know, volunteers and one way or another are helping us with something. We have a, an internship program with 10, you know, very capable interns. Uh, but mostly we, we, we create partnerships because, you know, when I was describing what the vision of the Green New Deal is, also, you know, it is, you know, if we change the role of government and we imagine that government is here just to convene, to articulate, to create partnerships, consolidate industry, you know, if, and we use our influence that way, then it all becomes what are the right partnerships, you know, with whom do we work? So, you know, for every program that we have, I can name one, one particular partner. But I think, you know, most people are very focused on, on the electrification program that we developed recently, which, you know, is the one that has created a lot of attention. And for that, we're partnering with our, an organization called Block Power. That, uh, you know, Block Power is a company that, that has, is a public benefit corporation actually, that has been working on, on you know, providing opportunities for electrification, for energy efficiency, uh, and also employment opportunities for particularly disadvantaged communities. So we're partnering with them. At the same time, we're partnering with uh, Alturus, which is a private equity firm. And, you know, it's one of those things. It's people with money, but with heart, too. So th that's a very rare species, you know, endangered species that we need to, you know, make sure that, you know, we keep them close. But, you know, there is a number of people uh, with money that are working with us. Alturus is, you know, the, the first one to come in and, and commit a ton of money, like I mean a ton of money, to help us do this. You know, initially they came in and said like, look, we can have a check for $50 million in the bank tomorrow. You wanna play with us? So we said yes, and so the money's in the bank. Uh, but then they said like, look, what you're doing is awesome, it's huge. And, and they believe and we agree that we're building a blueprint. And so they're willing to, you know, extend the funding, go beyond uh, $50 million, you know, extend for $100 million more uh, in the short term so we can continue moving forward. And, and through others, you know, came other, uh, of funders and, and you know, financial institutions that also partner with the city of Ithaca. Uh, for example, we are uh, you know, developing a community choice aggregation program. And for that, we are partnering with a company called uh, Local Power. Uh, this company has you know, a history of developing new innovative CCA models. So you know, we're working with them to do that. But you know, one of the most exciting uh, partnerships that we have is with the UN uh, Energy for All and UN energy programs. And uh, we first you know, partnered with Cornell University and Ithaca College in the town of Ithaca to create a, a United Nations Energy Compact, uh, basically you know, committing to do this you know, in the time that we say we're gonna do it. But then through that, you know, we developed new partnerships and we ended up joining the UN uh, Carbon Free Electricity Compact, uh, where you have organizations like Google, Microsoft, and others that are trying to figure out how do we get renewable energy 24 hours a day, seven days a week for places like Kitaka? And, and the question is not easy. Uh, it involves a lot of technology. So we have another partner, you know, like a power ledger that is you know, working with us. So I could go on and on and on and tell you now all the companies and infrastructure projects. Uh, I mean, I can elaborate on any of these projects if you want. Some of them are really cool to describe. Some of them are really boring, but you know, we have a ton of partnerships with a bunch of them takes a village. Um, I think a lot of people would be interested to hear how you were able to raise that much money and maybe dive into a bit just like the just sort of like financial model innovation that you're 
that you've decided upon to actually make this happen? So can you walk us through like, I don't know, the, the overall strategy of how the, the finance of all this works? Okay, I can try. Uh, but, but I need to give you context, man, I'm sorry. But I, you know, we no, start please. from the very beginning. You know, once we have the emissions, you know, we, we were figuring out, okay, how do we, you know, make a dent? How do we make sure that people know we're serious about this thing? You know, how do we scare the hell out of all those polluters? So we were like, okay, you know, buildings, buildings, because, you know, it's 40% of the emissions, but, you know, you can also deploy solar, which would help you decarbonize the grid, energy storage that would allow you to have flexibility. And, you know, if we look at the, you know, the possibility of co-deploying some technologies, we, we saw that we could also deploy charging stations. So suddenly a building became the way of eliminating 50% of the emissions, not 40%, 50% of the emissions. We're like, okay, how do we do this? And then we started looking at what other people have been doing in the city. And there are a number of organizations that have been focusing on, on either you know, retrofitting just to make buildings more thermally efficient or some that were focusing on you know, moving away from uh, natural gas and trying to you know, install heat pumps. And, uh, you know, and, and, and heat pumps are a good solution. So we started looking at that and we figured, okay, what if we were to do this you know, bigger than that? What if we were to do heat pumps and solar panels, charging stations, uh, heat pumps for water heating, induction cook uh, tops, and you know, what do we were to do that? Okay, then we started looking at, you know, how much this is gonna cost. And we saw that, dude, this is gonna cost about $50,000. Uh, when you put together multifamily and single family, the average per building is gonna be about $50,000 to do all of that. Because, you know, it requires us to change the electrical panel and to change a number of things. And, and then we saw that if we're going to do this for, you know, for a few buildings, we're going to be paying retail price. And even if we use incentives from the government, you know, that is going to bring the cost down maybe 30%. That's 30%, you know, it was interesting because we're like, okay, what if we were to create economies of scale, you know, and we were to repurpose this incentive. So that was the beginning of the thinking, like, okay, what if we were to do instead of one building, two buildings, what if we were to do the entire city? What if we were to do 6,000 buildings? The first answer that I got when I asked that question was because nobody's done it before and it's totally crazy and nuts to even try it. I was like, okay, challenge accepted, let's go for it. So we, we decided to, you know, to go for the entire city. And then we started looking at it and you add numbers and it's like, okay, that's a ton of money. But then we were like, uh, crap, man, we need to differentiate between residential and commercial buildings because they have different needs. But mostly if we're talking about putting money into them, then underwriting becomes an issue. So then we were thinking we need to separate them. So now it turns out that we have, you know, 70% uh, residential buildings, 30% commercial buildings. So we need to figure out whether this could work. So we thought about a pilot, but the beginning of the process was creating economies of scale. So the pilot needed to be big. So we decided, okay, let's have a pilot for 1,600 buildings. And it sounds crazy, but you know, 1,000 residential buildings one, and 600 commercial buildings. And for that we needed, you know, $70,000 average for every commercial building in Ithaca, $50,000 for every residential building. The sum was close to $100 million. So now we had a number. And then we started looking at what the problem is uh, in the city. And we were like, okay, the problem is that the industry is totally fragmented. You know, if you were to do that in your house, you need to hire about 16 different companies because everybody does something different. The other problem that we had was there were not too many options. You know, there is not enough sophistication in the market. So we have one supplier of these and one supplier of that, but at the end of the day, you need to attract more. So we were like, okay, what we need to do is to create a program that is big enough that will attract you know, companies from all over the place. So we increase sophistication and then the price can go down. We can also you know, create consolidation in the industry, recommend companies to work together so we can actually have uh, you know, less fragmentation. 
And then if we're talking about an economy of scale, and we're going to do this because the government is supporting this. What we have is a market. And you know who's interested in markets? Well, whoever has money right now. So then we start looking at you know where is the money today? And the money is you know and, and Mariana Mascaro puts it really well in, in her Mission Economy book. She's talking about the fire economy, you know, financial institution, uh, insurance, real estate. You know that's where the money is. So we were like, okay, let's go after the money. So we start talking to private equity firms, for, to insurance companies, commercial banks, and then we look, we saw that you know the cost of money changes so much. You know, if you go to a, you know, you, as a municipality, you can issue a bond and you issue debt, but, you know, not for a hundred million dollars, especially for a city that has an $80 million budget. So we couldn't do that. And then we went to commercial bank and, you know, the cost of capital is not huge. The amount of money is not quite what they would like to lend you. Uh, and, and it's very rigid. But then you, you look at private equity and, you know, it's very flexible. It's a very flexible form of capital, but a very high cost, you know, 10, 12% cost of capital. But you know, then then you start valuing things, and it's 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 uh, counterintuitive because you know you would go normally for the lowest interest for the lowest cost of capital, but flexibility, you know, if, if you were able to value that, that is actually at the core of everything. So okay, if we were able to talk about flexibility, if we were able to identify how much of this goes to risk, how much of the cost of capital goes to expected returns, how much of it goes to actual cost, you know, for the private equity firm, then we can have a strategy that addresses each one of them. So. We started talking to them and we were like, look, we have a market, man, and this market is huge. And the first pitch, and this was a, a funny one, because the first pitch was, imagine that we have a company, you know, through a competitive process, the city of Itaca selects a company. And now this company is privately held, it's not public. So if it is privately held and suddenly has a market, you know, the value of that company could be that, you know, you use for, for you know, privately held companies, you can use the price to uh, operating cash flow ratio as a way of determining the value of a company market capitalization. But if you do that using projected cash flow, considering that you are offering an entire market in a city, then the cash flow for this company is fucking crazy. And, and it really means that, uh, you know, it, it's not even about profit, it's about cash flow. So then suddenly, you know, I could see people on the other side of the desk thinking, okay, you know, like I can invest $50 million in a company that is gonna be valued at a hundred million or it's gonna be valued at a billion dollars soon and I can take them public. So that was the first hook that was like, okay, you know, we create an opportunity for investment for somebody. But then the next one was like, what if you come in and invest in this, you know? Because frequently, you know, private equity firms are they're looking for projects that they could finance. And, you know, projects that, you know, have a, you know, manageable risk. Uh, but, you know, that could, you know, provide an interesting return. And, you know, it was about, you know, okay, we can get private equity and we can get, uh, you know, banks, you know, lenders, conventional lenders to participate and get together. And then we, we modeled this and we realized, you know, we have a huge market, you know, from a project finance point of view, we can create a ton of money for people. So some of them recognize that and some of them call back and say, look, I, I think you're right. You have a market, you start with a pilot of 1600, but eventually it's an entire city, eventually it's an entire county, and maybe we can take over New York. And then the numbers were just adding up, you know, and, but the problem was risk. They were like, okay, so how do you manage risk? And we were, okay, so then we started thinking, okay, if the money comes from a private source, then what do you do with, with federal dollars? What do you do with state dollars, with rebates, you know? Instead of giving it to people, because what you do with, when you do that is basically eliminating the economy of scale, and making very inefficient use of uh, government money because you know a lot of it gets lost in the middle with you know with nonprofits particularly. So 
what if we were to consolidate that and put it in the same capital pool? So what if we were to use the state and federal incentives to buy down the cost of capital? So suddenly, you know, the investor were like, okay, I'm, I can see that. I can see that happening, you know, like I don't need to go down in my cost of capital, but you are doing this basically, you know, I have guaranteed part of my return already. So I can bring the cost of capital further down. And then we were like, well, what if we were to create a loan guarantee? What if we were actually to talk to the Green Bank of New York and we were to ask them to have a loan loss reserve? That is, you know, if they were to protect the second loss after the banks, you were to provide a guarantee for low income people. You know, in the state of New York, the, the rate of default for mortgages is around 2%. The rate of default for utilities below 1%. So let's have people pay through the utility bill, given that, and given a, a loan guarantee or a loan loss reserve from the state government, then suddenly we're eliminating a bunch of risks. So the private equity firm was like, you know what? That kind of works because we still get a return. The risk is much lower. We can invest not only in this pilot, but in the entire city. And then suddenly, you know, we have a, a huge return on our investment. So we started putting the numbers together and eventually they just added up. Uh, and so we have a program that has so many moving parts. So we have, uh, you know, private equity coming in and investing sometimes uh, as a full equity play, sometimes uh, coming in with a project conventional project finance structure where we are, you know, this is the coolest thing. And this is, I believe where, where, you know, I get really happy and excited because at some point in life, we figured that we could finance small scale solar. And whoever did that was a genius because it's really hard. You know, when you are investing a ton of money, it's really hard to invest in little projects. But you know, it's about aggregation. You know, once you start aggregating projects, then you can securitize those projects you can eventually sell them. You can eventually make money out of them. So then we thought, what if we were to securitize? What if we were to aggregate electrification projects? What if we were to talk about this as electrification as a service? And then when you do that, then you can have, you know, so many financial mechanisms to, to, to make them work. So we did that, private money, electrification as a service, repurposing state, federal uh, money rebates. Uh, the city is taking care of risk management. and We are relying on the local companies that will generate jobs. And by the way, we estimate that this effort is going to create 3,000 jobs in a community that has 30,000. So that is a pretty good deal when you think about it. And at the same time, we're eliminating 50% of the emissions in the city. So that's how it all came together. And we ran with it. And so far, so good. I wish we had like another two hours to dive into all that instead of <laughs> five minutes. Um, could you could you quickly walk us through this, how this, like what this looks like from your average citizen's perspective? Like what is the upfront cost, if anything? And just like, I'd, I'd love to hear it from that point of view, like what they'll experience. Yeah, look, the way it works is we developed this tool and it's a very cool tool, you know, Cornell University has its perks. So, you know, they helped us develop this tool through the, you know, environmental systems lab there. And, and this allows us to look at the entire city. You know, I can, you know, if you give me an address, I can tell you the energy profile of that particular building. So based on that, I have a sense of whether I could save you money if we were to retrofit your business. So you go there and then you tell them, dude, I believe that if we were to, you know, work on air sealing or insulation, we could, you know, reduce, uh, increase energy efficiency, reduce, you know, consumption of, uh, you know, electricity and, and, you know, natural gas for heating your home. But we could actually replace anything that uses, you know, natural gas and we can use heat pumps and that would actually 
remove all the methane that you don't know that you're breathing, but I promise you, you're breathing because there is a lot of leaks in your house just by virtue of having a natural gas furnace. So we tell them, you know, there are health benefits. And the question is, that sounds all good. How much is it going to cost me? The answer is, well, not much, actually nothing, because we are willing to put all the money up front. And then we're man we are willing to try to structure this in a way that, because we're so sure that we're going to produce savings, probably even at, with some, we, we are anticipating like 50, 60% savings. In some, it's going to be 10% maybe. But let's say you get somebody that gets 30% energy savings in the combined utility bill, no? Uh, and then, okay, what if we split the difference? What if we, you know, you repay this through the savings only? And for this to happen, it has to be a very long project. Let's make it a 20-year project that, you know, you're going to pay through, you know, the, the amount of money that you are saving and you're going to repay the loan. And then at the end, you know, we transfer ownership to you. Uh, so people go like, okay, so it's not going to cost me anything up front. No. Am I going to pay more for my electricity? No more than what you're paying right now. Okay, am I, is, it, is it complicated? Don't worry, it's turnkey. We're going to do everything for you. And they tend to go, okay, or they go, nah, I'm just joking. I voted for Trump. But, you know, number of things can happen at that point. But most people are, once they understand that, you know, there is no trick, there is no catch, they're going for it. That's awesome. And so let me just reiterate this and you can correct me if where I'm wrong. Um, you're getting a lot, you're using government incentives and some philanthropist money and kind of using that to pay interest to the private investors. And that's in, in order to attract these massive amounts of capital that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get with their kind of flexible terms. Um, you're mitigating risk with the city and insurance and all that. And then the actual savings from these investments are what is paying the investors back over this 20 year period. Is that roughly that's, that's simplified, rough, right? Roughly what it is. I think that the one thing that I would, you know, probably pr you know, put differently is you, you could use uh, incentives to pay for things. And that's a way of saying I will match, you know, because you will not pay for everything, but I will pay for this as long as you pay for this 10%. That is highly inefficient because what that is doing is unlocking maximum as much money as you're putting in. So it's a one-to-one -one impact if you are lucky. But given the inefficiencies, as we know from government, you know, the impact is one to 0.5 more or less. But if you use it here, if you use it, you know, to, to lower the cost of capital to guarantee a return, which could be translated into covering some of the interest, then you are, the, the impact is probably one to 20. You know, you are actually unlocking capital for every $5 million that you put in, you can get $100 million. So it's just repurposing this uh, because, you know, the one rule that we have in climate change, you know, for us practitioners working on this is like the key is to manage risk. And the second thing is to unlock capital. You know, if you think about it, climate change is nothing more than a, than a coordinated giant risk mitigation strategy that we're implementing as humanity. So it is all about risk management at the end of the day. Gotcha. Um, all right. I know I need to get the Q&A soon, but I have two more questions that I'd, I'd like each of you to answer. Um, the first one is just a general, like, how do we get more people to follow in Ithaca's footsteps and kind of what are the 
what are the main things you think people need to do or understand to replicate Ithaca's success and ambition? Successes so far in ambition. It's all yours, Rebecca. No, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, the Green New Deal in Ithaca started with a crazy dream. Um, and I think it still kind of is. So I think, um, you know, Luis mentioned the Thousand Conversations project. One of the prompts that we actually give people um, for those conversations is imagine that the future is different, that it's your ideal utopia. What does that what does that look like? Um, I think we are collectively kind of restrained in our imagination of what the future looks like, particularly around climate change. Um, so I think giving ourselves, you know, that permission to think that there is something and there could be something different is, is the very first step. Um, in absolutely no world did I think that we would end up here um, in 2019. In no world did I think that the mayor would even read those letters. So it's just, it's amazing to see what just, just trying um, can actually do. I mean, even if we don't get to carbon neutrality by 2030, we will have cut emissions immensely. And that alone is an excellent blueprint for the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Um, and that amount of emissions cutting could potentially be a matter of life and death for a number of people all over the globe. So, you know, I am a dreamer for sure. And I think that we need more dreamers and we need more people to give themselves that space to, to think about what, what could be different. And then once you figure that out, what's your, you know, your utopia you know, what's your passion within that and how can you plug in to make that happen? Where are the groups that align that vision? Um, and, you know, Luis mentioned trying to find that, that nexus um, between these different concerns. And I think that's exactly what we're doing. Great it's a, a squishy sort of answer, but. <laughs> we need that. Luis? Well, you know, I have to go with Rebecca on this one. I think the, on, on one hand, you need to want to, to do this, you know, and, and, you know, we can talk about it at the personal level and, you know, what is it, what is it that it means to you, but also you, you, you can talk about it at the community level. Uh, and then I mentioned at the very beginning, you know, there is certain responsibility that comes with being part of a developed country where this is possible. So it's coming to terms with the, the reality of the world that we live in today. And you know the report that was published by the IPCC yesterday, it's not going to be read in many places. It's not going to be read in, in, in places like the one I come from. Like nobody's going to know what that is. And they don't care. They don't have to care because we do. Uh, and, and what we do is, is you know, we, we take action immediately. And, and you know, it's going to take a while for things to spread. You know, uh, we're, we're talking about, you know, change in the economy, change in society. And, you know, they have different times and different different models to, for, for them to spread. So for things to make it where they have to make it, it's gonna take much longer than the change in the economy, than the change in finance uh, or political change. So we need to get going today because otherwise it, it may not be too late for us, but it might be very late for other people. So, so if we are conscious of that, if we're conscious of, 
of being in a world that is shared by 7 billion people, you know, if, if you don't want to do this, you know, I don't know what to say, man. <laughs> I think you just don't care. And that's cool. It's your right. But honestly, what the hell, man? <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. I've had you two to myself for too long. Uh, Mace, you want to pop back in and we'll, we'll start up the Q&A? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. It was so great to hear from you guys. Um, there's a few questions that I'm interested in the chat. I'm going to kind of combine a few just for time. I know we just kind of touched on this, um, but just sort of like how, you know, the average person can kind of get involved. Um, you kind of touched on it generally, but someone else asked, like, have you thought about having a, an assembly group or an advisory group of ordinary people to kind of help you out? Or is that, you know, is there other ways that people can get involved without, you know, having it be their job or something they're really appreciate. I mean, for us, we cannot do it if we don't have a group of ordinary people working with us. Uh, I mean, we have a steering committee that is made up entirely by people from the community. Uh, and we have a group of very large group of volunteers. And we have a group of people like Rebecca's friends, like the Sunrise Movement, that always uh, keeps us honest. And, uh, and we're working with the Climate Reality Group too, so yeah, no, we, we have climate reality is building a scorecard. You know, they're gonna really keep us honest and on track. Uh, the steering committee is people from the community that are making sure that whatever we do is in benefit of the community, that we're not, you know, cutting corners or doing anything wrong. But also the people we work with every day, they are doing this because they believe in what we're doing. And, and I think that is the best way of keeping us in check. You know, I know that somebody's here because they believe in me, they believe in the work, they believe in the mission. If you try, I mean, if you go any way far from what you started doing, they will go away. So yeah, we thought about it and we think it's, it's necessary for, for this to be successful. Um, there's a really great video from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez around the 2020 election that, um, and it really stuck with me for a number of reasons, but um, she says, we should stop asking people, um, what should I do? And instead ask ourselves, what do we want to give? And then you can find what you're really passionate about. And the answer is never gonna be, no, we don't want your help. It just doesn't happen. Um, so I think the best way to get involved is to figure out, you know, how does what you're good at and what you're passionate about align with the goals of whatever this is, the Green New Deal in this case. Um, and, and how can you use that to, to further that mission? Um, because if your heart is not in what you're doing, then it doesn't really matter. You know, if you don't like playing with spreadsheets, then, you know, <laughs> data drag and drop is not going to be helpful for you. And if it's not helpful for you, it's ultimately not helpful for us. Um, so it's a, anyway, it's a great video. And um, I encourage people to, to think about it in that way, especially from the from the activist perspective. That's awesome. I I'm gonna go on to the, the next question here and Macy, you, you can do the one after. But I see one from Laura Berry. She said she'd love to hear about any challenges you faced or strategies you have found successful in one, securing buy-in among city staff for the work you're doing, and two, making sure that the Green New Deal work is funded appropriately, which I think 
I was also wondering about when you were talking earlier, Luis, uh, just like dealing with private equity people and making sure stuff doesn't get out of control or anything like that. I don't know. I feel like they have a bad connotation, um, but it depends who you're working with, I'm, I'm sure. No, and, and it depends on the level of transparency that you have. I mean, that, that is paramount. I mean, if you are not, you know, totally open with people in terms of what you're doing, how you're doing it, who you're working with, um, the, the, the problem is, is, as I mentioned, it's not money, it's not technology, it's not ideas, it's not policy, it's people. Uh, people that don't agree with you or people that agree with you but believe strongly that it, should, it, it has to be done differently. Uh, and, and those are equally problematic uh, issues when you're trying to do something as, as complex as what we're trying to achieve here. Uh, it, it was very difficult to get the buy-in because Rebecca was right. They, beyond the joke, neither the mayor nor the city council understood what they were getting into. Uh, and and they, they found it funny when I said this is crazy, but they didn't even understand what I meant by that. This is expensive. This is going to cost $2 billion for a small city like Itaca. This is going to require incredible amount of hours, you know, that, that people are going to have to put in to make it happen. And it's going to require support from the mayor at every step. It's going to require the city council to be involved, to be asking questions, but also to be allocating money. The problem is that small municipalities across the country have their operating budget from a tax base that was reduced in the pandemic. So right now, it is practically impossible for them to assign any money to a sustainability initiative that requires $2 billion. So you need to go outside. You need to go to philanthropic organizations, foundations, the community, private equity firms, people with good hearts. Uh, and uh, we're finding ways, but it's very, very difficult. And I'm going to mention something that I... It's going to take me a minute to tell you, but this is an example of the challenges and how we can actually surmount those challenges. People are the main problem, and people in America are different. And throughout this process, I have gotten, you know, hate mail. I have gotten people send me emails and letters uh, that are not very nice to me and my ethnicity. Uh, and, and I got one email from somebody saying, you know, I'm a I was born in Ithaca, I belong in this city, you don't. And, and they meant the way you look, and they also imply that, you know, I shouldn't be in the position that I am because I have too much influence in the future of their city. So I responded, can you elaborate? You know, because, you know, that's what's polite, you, you answer. And they engage in conversation. You know, at some point we stop, but when we announced electrification program, I got an email from them saying, well done, you know, that was all, that's all the email had. But then you start thinking, you know, people are afraid. They're afraid of change. They're afraid of people who look different. They're afraid of foreign ideas. But sometimes it's just about engaging in conversation. Sometimes they're crazy and dangerous, but sometimes it's all about that. It's about, you know, having a conversation and, and it's very difficult. It's very uncomfortable. It's not pleasant, you know, uh, but that's what we do, you know, because we love these things. Thank you. All right, Macy, what you got? Um, it looks like a lot of people are referencing the the Cornell like tool, the energy tool that you mentioned. They're wondering um, if that is a resource that can be provided. If that's something you know that might apply to other cities, could be helpful for other people, or like how, kind of how specific that is to Ithaca. Well, at the end of the day, it's a tool that, you know, 
just receives input. So we have, you know, a lot of information in the city uh, and, you know, uh, GIS information and also information from Google, uh, information that we're gathering from the community and all of that is fed into the model. And what that gives you is a map of, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, what we have in the city. And, and based on that, for example, you, you can have an archetype, you can identify that, you know, in the case of Ithaca, about 40% uh, of the buildings were built before 1920. So we know what type of codes there were. We know what type of, uh, you know, materials, uh, you know, the way buildings were uh, constructed by then, and also the way, you know, that the, we can model the way these buildings have, you know, uh, aged. So based on that, you know, we can, we can estimate, you know, the energy profile. So if you are able to input the same information for a completely different town, we'll be able to replicate it. So the platform was developed by the Environmental Systems Lab at Cornell University. And I need to say through grants from a number of people including Park Foundation. So I, I think that Cornell University would be happy to work with other, any other municipality on this, uh, just about reaching out to them. All right, we have probably more questions than we have time for here. So I'm just gonna say up front, if we don't answer your question the next like 10 or 15 minutes while we're all still here, uh, we will do our best to get back to you all on them, get them all answered. Um, there's one from Roy Pryor here, which I think is worth diving into deeper because we touched on it, but didn't really delve into it. Uh, he says, what transport issues are being addressed as part of the move to reduce single vehicle occupancy, et cetera? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it, it, transportation is complicated uh, in a way that uh, it's not for buildings. So, and that has to do with the perception people have of their constitutional right to have a pickup truck. You know? and, and it is understandable, to be honest, and it's the right, you know, to decide. But at the same time, you know, we need to make them understand that you know, there are benefits for everybody to move in a different direction, you know, to a vehicle as powerful, but that makes less noise and vibrates much less. So what we're doing is a number of things. We're starting with the municipal fleet. We're electrifying the municipal fleet. And to do that, we need to deploy a lot of charging infrastructure. Uh, we're looking into, you know, uh, electrifying the fire uh, department, the police department that have very specific requirements, the Department of Public Works that has requirements, for example, for electric garbage trucks, uh, so, you know, we have alternatives for all of those. So we are contacting a lot of the manufacturers. We are using a similar financial model to the one that we're using for buildings. We are also working with local organizations in, the, in deploying uh, uh, an integrated multimodal transportation system in the city that will, you know, start with car share that already is available with bike share that we had before the pandemic or went away, but we are, you know, redeploying bike share our hope is to bring uh, uh, electric mopeds to the city. But the challenge that we have is also that the, the city is, you know, the winter lasts five months and the students go for the summer. So it's very difficult to make it work from a financial point of view. So we need to identify what the right model for it is. Uh, and then finally, we have a transit system that uh, has only 50 buses, but uh, out of which seven are already electric. And the goal, the, 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 they were projecting to electrify the full fleet by 2030, but the city is working with them to help them accelerate that. And hopefully in three years, we'll have an absolutely free, uh, sorry, uh, electrified fleet. Uh, we're also 
figuring out uh, you know, ways of integrating these. For example, if the whole city is electric at some point and some businesses are saving money through this program, then for example, let's say I go back to 40% savings in one building. Uh, they can devote 20% of the savings to repay the loan, 10% to donate to pay for the electricity for a, an electric bike share system and 10% to donate to a low-income family to, so they can cover the electric bill and eliminate energy burdens. So once you move to full electric and you think of electricity as a, as a digital energy, then you have a number of options and alternatives that you can use, including subsidizing electric transportation. So we're looking into all of those things as, as we speak. We have alternatives for some, in others we're still trying to figure out. But the, the last thing that we have, and this is something Rebecca and I were talking about today, we, it's all about financial innovation once again, because when you bring money that is private capital, you need to worry about financial inclusion. So how do you actually make uh, that money available for people without credit history or a bad credit history? How do you make that money available for somebody who, who you know, doesn't have a job today? So we're working on, on identifying ways of, of doing that so we can bring secondhand electric vehicles for a sector of the population for a very, very reduced cost. And I'm talking about having somebody buying an electric car for $500 and perhaps leasing the battery for $30 a month. And we could have philanthropic organizations covering the cost of the lease, for example. So that, that's the way you actually achieve equity. So if you enter all of these parameters and all the intentions into a machine learning model, you can identify where you're gonna deploy each one of the charging stations that you need to have on the streets and in parking lots. So it covers the entire population. So everything I just mentioned, we're working on. And I, I would add to Luisa's very technical explanation. Um, you know, one of the additional challenges with transportation is how deeply interconnected it is with other sustainability issues. So um, the city of Ithaca is an economic hub in this area. Um, two major employers are the colleges. And because of, um, you know, generations of gentrification, a lot of the lower income individuals can afford to, cannot afford to live in the city anymore and need to commute. So just because people that live within municipal boundaries of the city of Ithaca are driving electric cars and riding the bus or whatever, we have this additional problem of commuters coming into the city because they cannot afford to live here. Um, so, and that's kind of what I think is the beauty of sustainability in the Green New Deal is that you cannot think of these things in isolation. So in addition to, you know, deployment of electric vehicles and charging stations, we also need to think about how do we build up the economy so either people can afford to live here or people don't have to commute here at all? Um, and that's one of the more um, challenging, I guess, um, approaches to the, to the transportation conversation, but important nonetheless. I think that kind of relates to this question from Sue Barnes. Um, as a high-income community, uh, much of Ithaca's carbon footprint arises from purchase, consumption of goods, services, that kind of thing. Um, is are you planning to address like the embedded emissions as part of the greenhouse gases, and like what does that look like if you are? Yeah, we. I mean, if, if you look at the numbers in Ithaca, uh, look at the, the the quality census tracks and you will see that, you know, about 40% of the cities actually, uh, you know, below 60% of the median income. So we are not talking about a, a very wealthy, we, we are talking about 
uh, uh, wealth uh, gap and wealth inequality in the city. And we have people who are income poor and people who are asset poor in the city. And that distinction is very, very important in college towns. Uh, so it, I wouldn't say it's uh, you know a high income community, but what it is, it's a, a community that historically has focused on sustainability in, in a different way. Now it's more pragmatic, but I think before that, uh, people were focusing on, on this issue of consumption. Uh, so we are, you know, constantly, you know, sending the message that, that people have to be more conscious in terms of, you know, purchases, in terms of, you know, the way they, they look at, you know, local uh, companies and, and local products. And we are, for example, in, in terms of, we didn't talk about it, but in terms of waste management or, you know, uh, materials management and resource recovery, which is what we call it, we're looking into, like, how do we reduce the source of waste? You know, how do we have an extended producer responsibility? For example, after the pandemic, people were taking food home. And so now the state of New York banned styrofoam, but now everybody has plastic because that's how they take food home. So how do we actually create responsibility for restaurants that have plastics, you know, for people to take home? So we're working on that. It's a tricky issue, but, you know, the question is welcome and it's very difficult to answer uh, concretely, but, you know, we're looking into all of these issues. Some of them. Brendan Sarsfield has a question I think is just worth clarifying in case other people were confused. Um, you wrote, I get the impression that the plan for buildings is to replace carbon generating energy with green energy, which is important. What about insulation, insulation and reducing the need for energy? And I'm, you guys are doing the whole building envelope, heat pumps, you know, replacing fossil fuel appliances with electric ones, but can you just kind of quickly run through the list of what you're looking at when you go to a building in particular and how you're yeah. upgrading it? Yeah, the, the program has a very geeky name that I gave and Rebecca hates, but the program is called Energy Efficiency Retrofitting and Thermal Load Electrification. And what that means is first and foremost, we go in and we say, okay, we're gonna look at how efficient the building is. And that is air sealing, that is insulation, we look at windows and if needed, we replace them with high performance windows. We look at ventilation systems. Uh, we look at uh, you know, natural gas and distribution of uh, appliances. Then we start looking at you know, what, do, what do you have in the building that uh, produces energy and energy is normally used for heat. So we're talking about space heating, we're talking about water heating, we're talking about clothes dryers and cooktops. Those are the key. Then, yeah, there is opportunity to change light bulbs if it is needed. There is opportunity to, you know, substitute some of your appliances for more efficient ones. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you. Right now, with everything that we're doing, we're gonna triple the load in the city, and we do not have the infrastructure to deal with that. So what we're doing is making sure that we reduce energy intensity first and foremost before we actually move into electrification. Awesome. Thank you. Uh... And I'm going to ask the very last question and just, I would love to hear from each of you. Uh, just do you have like a call to action for people or any final thoughts or message you'd like to share with people listening? Rebecca? You always make me go first. Um, <laughs> I mean, general call to action, do something, anything. Um, but I mean, it sounds very rudimentary, but but seriously, I mean, the Green New Deal in Ithaca started with a bunch of 20-year-olds at a bar with their boss. Um, that's how this started, and it turned into 
whatever the hell it is now. Um, and, you know, it's about turning that fear of the future into fuel for action. And I think that's really the best thing that we can be doing right now is figuring it out. What are we passionate about and how do we make that, um, how do we make that happen? Who do we partner with to make that happen? Um, you know, one of the things that I love about working in sustainability in Ithaca is the amazing group of people that, that live and work here that make it feel like fun. I mean, it was like such a natural transition to work for the city. Um, and it's because I figured out where I belong in this fight. Um, and luckily, Luis thought that I had a place <laughs> at the city of Ithaca. Um, but yeah, I think any any sort of movement is movement, right? We just need to move the needle little by little. And if everybody's doing something, eventually we can start working together and then that needle's moving a lot farther, a lot faster. Um, but, you know, getting involved in local government, I think is one of the best things that people can do. We tend to focus on, um, you know, national elections because they're big and they're splashy. And of course they do have a huge impact, but again, this is a, this is a community of 30,000 people that has shaken the foundation of the energy economy in this region. Um, and it started with a bunch of kids getting involved in local government and contacting their mayor. So figure out who your representatives are if you don't know who they are and start a conversation. Um, it's amazing how far those conversations and those partnerships can go. It's just hard to follow that one, man. That's unfair. Uh, I, I, I think what I would say is, is, you know, what we're doing is very hard. It's frustrating. It's extremely tiring. Uh, and you're going to take three steps forward, and then you're going to have to take a couple back every single time. Uh, and then you're going to figure out a solution, and then somebody's going to tell you it's not ideal. Uh, and somebody who's, you know, fighting next to you for this is going to get into a fight with you because, you know, they disagree. We tend to be very intense people working in this space. But what I invite people is, you know, not only for those that work with you or that you want to work with, is, is to, you know, suspend your cynicism for a second uh, and uh, stop assuming that everything that everybody thinks is hardwired into their brains. A lot of the time it's just about, you know, having a conversation, talking to them. If you're an activist, engage government. If you're a government, engage your activists. If you're a member of the community, talk to your neighbor. But at the end of the day, this is. This is not going to go away. It's there, and and we are the ones who are going to solve it. And the last thing, and I always say this, you know, forget about uh, uh, you know living the world better than the way we found it. That's just stupid. We we need to live in a world better than the way we found it. So it's life before death, not life after death. So I really think that we need to think about it differently and and move away from those environmentalist ideas from the 70s and 80s and and move to today. You know, there is urgency. There is a lot to do, but we know how to do it. Those are two fantastic messages to end on. Um, Luis and Rebecca, thank you so much for coming coming on and uh, for all the important work that you're doing and that your partners are doing all over Ithaca to you know, lead the charge on decarbonizing our cities uh, with these policies and investments that are rooted in justice. Um, like you said, I think it's just super important that people know this is possible. And I know I appreciate all the strategies and tips you're sharing uh, or that you shared. And 
I have a good feeling that people on the call here today listening in and asking questions are gonna, gonna help this to accelerate action wherever they live around the world. And um, thank you for everyone who tuned in. Uh, appreciate y'all. We're gonna try to answer all your questions afterwards. Um, and yeah, just thank you to everyone. Grateful that everyone here is cares about this and is working hard on it. Thank you very much, man. Yeah, thank you.